Hi everyone. Uh, well, Hollywood has a lot to say about love and marriage. The typical big screen love story goes something like this. Girl meets boy. Uh, after a rocky beginning, they finally realize that they were perfect for each other all along and it's off to the races. Everyone is drop dead gorgeous. The sex is great and frequent. Incomes are substantial. And while there's some trouble along the way, in the end, they all live happily ever after. And I don't know about you, I haven't found marriage to quite follow that path. By the way, spend a little time researching the success rate of marriages in Hollywood and I think you'll soon conclude that, that we need to find a, a new authority on the subject. And so like anything else, I think it's best to go back to the source. And, and since God invented marriage, I think we should probably go back to him and to see how it works best. And so we're talking about marriage today. And here's my big idea. Marriage is God's picture of Jesus to the world. And no pressure, but that's a, that's a pretty high bar and we're going to break it down today. So this is the final week of our series called Building Thriving Families. Uh, we've been using a surprising definition each week and saying that family is a multi-generational team on mission. And within that definition, I, I think we can locate the concept of marriage. Uh, are we functioning as a team? Uh, do we have a clear mission? Uh, do we have some role models who are older than us? And so today we're going to look at marriage in, in, in a part of the New Testament that lays out what are called house codes. These are specific instructions given to husbands and wives, children and parents, in those days servants and masters. And ancient writings show that these relationships were given instructions in all kinds of cultures according to that culture's expectations. And so there are Greek and Jewish writings addressing these relationships and they address them more in stereotypical fashion. And even though what I'm about to read to you sounds very old fashioned to our ears, it was necessary at the time for Christian writers to kind of weigh in on the house codes, in part because Christians were being accused of destroying societies with their focus on freedom and love and, and, and Jesus in this whole new movement. And so what made the Christian codes countercultural in their time was their instruction to those in power. So other codes reinforced kind of a patriarchal approach. If you were a husband or a parent or a master, it was kind of anything goes. The instructions were given mainly for those under your power. Christian writings took a very different approach. And so I want to go to one such example of the house codes over in Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 21. You can turn there if you'd like in your Bible or on your device, Ephesians 5, 21. And in our text today, I'd like to explore six basic truths about the miracle of marriage. And I want to talk about the, the power of marriage and the priority of marriage, the definition of marriage, the purpose of marriage, the structure of marriage, and the mystery of marriage. No small feat. And so shout out to Tim Keller today for those categories and, and really some amazing insights on this text. First, let's look at Ephesians 5, 21 to 33. I'm going to be in the NIV today. It says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. 
And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. So hey, we're gonna go out of this series with a bang here in the final week. As you know, we don't shy away from tough parts of the Bible, and so we're gonna walk through this today and see what maybe God has for us in 2023. So here's the first basic truth that I want you to see from the text. It's the power of marriage is spirit-enabled selflessness. You know, we've been saying all month that one of the biggest distinctives between Christian family and the American dream kind of family is a team approach. We talked about the dangers of me-ism. See, in the nuclear family approach, the goal is for every member to succeed on their own merit. So dad needs to succeed, mom needs to succeed, each kid needs to succeed in every endeavor. But in a Christian family, there's this kind of idea that the team is primary. And that's why sections of scripture like this are so shocking to the system. So so in verse 21, Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Now, depending on your Bible version, verse 21 here might be connected to, to verse 20 as the summary statement for the section that comes before it, talking about life within the church. Or it might be connected to, to verse 22 as the introductory statement for this section on marriage and household rules. The truth is it belongs to both sections. But because this idea of mutual submission is pertinent in both the church and in the home. But but I went with the NIV version here because uh, over the ESV because I think it belongs with this section on marriage. You see, in the original Greek language, this word submit isn't even used in verse 22 where wives are told to submit to their husbands. The word is actually borrowed or assumed from verse 21. And so these two verses are linked tightly together. Now, mutual submission doesn't mean there aren't roles but it does speak to the attitude that's required within a marriage relationship. This idea of selfless submission is a key not only to both husbands and wives, but to the whole Christian life. I mean, Jesus went around applying this to to everything. Like, if you're gonna be first, you're gonna be last. If you're gonna be great in my kingdom, you're gonna be a servant of all. And so people who come to Ephesians 5 thinking that it's supporting some sort of chauvinistic vision of a husband as like a king on the throne in his home with a wife kissing his boots, it's completely misunderstanding. Not just marriage, but all of Christianity. I often tell soon-to-be husbands that the only crown they're gonna wear is a crown of thorn in their homes because it's a crown of sacrifice because that's the kind of crown our king wore. See, the idea here is that a marriage that reflects the heart of Christ and is enabled by the Spirit is one of selfless submission to one another. Wives are to submit to their husbands. In other words, posture themselves in a giving relationship to their husbands as their husbands also do for them in sacrificial love. And what is it that allows a husband and a wife to serve each other so selflessly? Well, look what Paul says in verse 21 at the end. He says, it is a reverence of Christ. It's a relationship with Christ, an experience of Christ, a focus always on Christ. And that's what allows you to submit to the needs of one another. That's the power for marriage. And Paul is assuming if you're going to have a good marriage, you will have a spirit-enabled ability to be unselfish in the way you treat each other. Now, the flip side of that is also true. The main problem in most marriages is self-centeredness. It's what kills marriages. And so the key here is this reverence for Christ and enablement by the Spirit. I'm reminded of this marriage triangle that shows kind of a successful marriage involves three parties, a husband, a wife, and God himself. 
And as the husband and the wife move up the triangle, kind of closer to God, it, it, it results in them also moving closer to one another in intimacy as well. And so the power of marriage is spirit-enabled selflessness. We're, we're gonna jump ahead in the passage now all the way down to 31. It's the second basic truth. It's the priority of marriage, saying your number one human relationship is your spouse. So look at verse 31. It says, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. So think about this. Up until you get married, the fundamental relationship you had on this earth was with your mom and dad in most cases. Now think about how foundational your relationship was with your parent or parents. Like it shapes you so profoundly. It marks you forever, sometimes in really good ways, sometimes in really bad ways. But now God says that you're going to leave, leave that foundational relationship and you're going to form a bond that's even stronger than that in your marriage. And so now your primary person in the whole world is your spouse. No other person should be, should you be investing more time and money and energy and creativity and emotion in than your spouse in that relationship next to Jesus. That person is your top priority, which means your marriage is most important. It has to be more important than your job. If you put your career before your spouse, guess what happens? You lose both. It's more important than your kids, and this is particularly important today because I sometimes see parents getting their emotional fulfillment mainly through their kids instead of through their spouse. If your children come before your spouse, if you're getting more out of your kids and their love than you're getting out of love for your spouse, man, that thing is gonna crumble. Another is friends. Like if you have a friend or friends who are more important to you than your spouse, who you share more with, or you seem to, who seem to understand you more, or you spend more time with them than your spouse, that is not sustainable for a marriage. And for some of you, the issue is parents. As this verse points out, some marriages struggle because one or both spouses haven't left their parents well. The husband or wife maybe never really figured out how to leave their father and mother. And so when you stay financially dependent on mom and dad, it creates troubles. Or emotionally dependent, like you, you never make a decision as a couple until your parents approve. This is going to begin to erode the marriage. Because, because just think about the, the erosion of trust between a husband and wife. In the, in the back of your mind, you're thinking, if I'm vulnerable with this person, my spouse, they're going to run and blab it all to their mom. I, I'm not going to tell her or him anything. And for some of you, it's not financial or emotional failure to leave. You, you can't leave old family patterns. Marriage is the ultimate fresh start. But, but like if one spouse comes in saying, this is the way I always did it growing up, and so this is the way we're doing it. Or my mom always did this, so you better. Or my dad always did that, so you better. Like if you come in like that, you haven't left properly. And some of you are relieved right now because you're like, Phew, well, I hate my parents, and so this doesn't apply to me. Guess what? If you hate your parents, you too have not left properly. They're still controlling you just in a different way. And so the Bible is clear. Marriage becomes your number one relationship and you have to fight to make it so because many other suitors are gonna come calling for your priorities. Now, at the same time, we've been saying multi-generational influence is very important. So it's a balance that you need to learn to strike, that relationship with your parents. The third basic truth is the miracle of marriage. It's the, it, 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 I'm sorry, the third basic truth to the miracle of marriage is this definition of marriage. It's a covenant. 
So, so let's stay right in verse 31, where he, he gives the call to leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. The old word for be united is the word cleave to his wife, not cleaver like a tool that chops things off. Some of you are like, whew, that, that, to cleave is covenantal language. The word cleave means literally to be glued to, to be unbreakably bound legally to someone. And at its roots, marriage is a covenant. And a covenant is simply a deep, exclusive, permanent, legal, and personal binding commitment. So the essence of marriage then is that it's not a, a declaration of present love. You're not just saying, I'm loving you right now. It's the binding promise of future love. It's a promise not to, to feel warm and loving all the time because nobody can promise that. It's a promise to be loving and to be selfless and faithful and cherishing and serving regardless of the ups and downs or emotions or circumstances. And I'm gonna do those things long-term through thick and thin. That's the essence of a covenant. And it's a covenant first and foremost created by God. When you enter into it, you enter in underneath the rules and regulations of the creator. So, so, for example, just like if you, if you get a car, you wouldn't say, you know, I've decided that instead of putting gas in the tank, I'm going to put turkey gravy in the tank. Like, if you do that, you're going to kill the car. It runs according to the rules and the regulations of the one who invented the car. You have to submit to those rules to enjoy the car or else you're going to destroy it. So, so when you get into a marriage, you're not getting into a human invention. You're getting into something with divine origins and parameters. So God defines marriage as a covenant. But in modern times, marriage is not about covenant, it's about chemistry. People think as long as the chemistry is there, I'm in. But as soon as I feel the chemistry waning, I'm out. This misses God's dream for marriage by a mile. See, see with covenants, there are both promises and obligations, things I get and things I give. And it's serious business. I mean, when a covenant was entered in the Old Testament, it was called to cut a covenant. Because in those days, there was no paper to be signed. There were no attorneys to assist or judges to enforce. Back then, a king would come and he would cut an animal in half. And as you made your covenant oath, he would place the two halves of that animal on the ground. And as you walked between the pieces, you would pledge your loyalty to the covenant. In essence, you were saying, if I break this covenant, may I be cut in half like that animal. That's why a lot of marriage vows still use the phrase like, till death do us part. Say, may I die if I break this thing. But, but this is a far cry from the chemistry approach to, to marriage, which says, I'll stay in it as long as it feels good and it's serving my needs. The great poet W.H. Auden said, any marriage, happy or unhappy, is infinitely more interesting than any romance, however passionate. Now, that's a, that's, that's a big statement. How can he say that? Well, he goes on to say, marriage is not the involuntary result of fleeting emotion, but the creation of time and will. He, he's saying covenant is more interesting and more satisfying even than chemistry. And if you're married, I want you to just think back to that first time that you kissed your spouse. For some of you, it's way back when. For Kim and I, but almost 35 years ago. And that thrill of that first kiss was almost like an electric charge going through your body, remember? And I would ask, is it still exactly like that all these decades later? No, and it's because I think Auden is right. It's still thrilling, 
but in a deeper way. You know, those first seconds of romantic thrill, like that first time that you kiss or touch someone intimately, like that is largely about ego. Let's just be honest, it's about you. That's why you're buzzing with excitement. Like, you did it, dude. Like, you got another person to be into you, and they're responding to you. That deep need that you had for affirmation is getting filled by another person, and it's really exciting. And, and honestly, it's more ego than love. 35 years later, to be in the arms of someone, that same person, but this time we've been through a lot of stuff, and I... Now, I would give absolutely anything for her. Like if somebody said she needs a leg, I'd be like, here, cut mine off. It'll look a little weird on her, but she can have mine. I mean, my love and my respect and my concern for Kim now is so deep that I would absolutely, without hesitation, give my life for hers. Here's how Keller frames this. He says, as time goes on, it shifts from the thrill of this great person liking you to your love of that person, your desire for that person, your commitment to see that person flourish and thrive, even if it means great cost to yourself. That's a passion too, and it's one that grows and grows over time. That's a thrill too, but it's a thrill that contrasts with that first thrill the way a river contrasts with a mud puddle. It's covenant, not chemistry. That's the meaning of life. Any marriage, happy or unhappy, is infinitely more interesting than any romance, however passionate. That depth of passion only comes in the context of covenant. Here's the fourth basic truth. The purpose of marriage is oneness. So look at the second part of that verse 31. It says, the two will become one flesh. The ultimate purpose of marriage is oneness, deep and soul oneness. It's, it's, it's weird math, but it goes like this. One plus one equals one. One husband plus one wife equals one united entity in the eyes of God. This is actually the same math that God uses in the Trinity. One father plus one son plus one spirit equals one God. So, so husbands and wives are not called to be two independent individuals that just live under the same roof. They're actually called to be one spiritually before God. I think our, great, our grandparents and great-grandparents, they seemed to understand this better uh, before we entered the selfie era. They, they knew that when you're married, you no longer get to use the word me to talk about life decisions. All the M's get flipped upside down in that statement. And some people say, you know, well, I'm, I'm going to get married, but I still want to pursue all my own dreams. Then don't do it, bro. You're too selfish to be married. The, the me becomes a we. Not in a weird codependent kind of way, but in a unified, selfless, biblical kind of way. And this applies especially to things like resolving conflicts. You see, when you're unified, your disagreements don't have a winner and a loser because you're either winning together or you're losing together every time. I wanna delve into this just for a moment here. See, all marriages hit moments of conflict. She wants to have a baby, he's not ready. He wants more sex than she does. She, he, he's lax about housework until she begs him. He, he wants to raise the kids in church, she doesn't. She thinks he, he's too critical of their son, he thinks the boy needs to be toughened up. These are all examples of conflict. But there are some left untouched, unexpressed conflict will turn assumptions into accusations and accusations into evidence. And it's like rendering a verdict when the other person didn't even know court was in session. It's such a profound way to phrase it. Communication is the key. Communication gives life. Silence is the killer. 
And so the purpose of marriage is oneness. And conflict can creep in and divide you. And sometimes it takes counseling to unravel some of this. Sometimes it just takes another set of loving and caring eyes. You know, we have a really great ministry here called our Marriage Mentoring Ministry at Grace. We have mentoring couples who have been trained to walk with others through the ups and downs of marriages. You can get a hold of them a couple ways. You can email marriage at whoisgrace.com to find this ministry, or you can go over to our website, whoisgrace.com slash get help. But please access this resource because the purpose of marriage is oneness. The two become one. Here's the fifth basic truth about the miracle of marriage. It's that the structure of marriage is complementary roles. I want you to look at verses 22 and 25. 22 says, wives, submit yourself to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. 25 says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, the ironic thing is that what culture you live in will largely determine which side of this passage gets you fired up. <laughs> in our culture, we equality-minded folks bristle at the S word, that submit word that's directed toward wives. In the original audience, and actually in, in more, some more traditional cu cultures, even in today's world, they don't think twice about that first part. It's the man that would have bristled. In the ancient Middle East, women and children had, had no legal rights. Everything flowed through the man of the house. So if he did something harmful to his wife or kids, they had no recourse whatsoever. There was no authority above his authority in the home. And so to the original readers, the real controversial part of this passage was not that women would submit, that was understood. It was that husbands would sacrificially love and give everything for their wives and not exasperate their children. That was the radical part. So there are some theological words that I think will be helpful here as it relates to men and women's roles, both in the home and in the church. Egalitarian and complementarian. So egalitarians would say that men and women are interchangeable when it comes to functional roles within the home and the church. On the other hand, complementarians would say that men and women are equal before God in worth and value in every way, yet they hold distinctive functional roles in the home and church. As you may know, for example, we have women pastors here at Grace, but we're also a complementarian church. We draw that line of functional functional leadership roles for, for men at the level of elder instead of pastor. But, but there is just that one distinct role. In this passage, the head and body metaphor is also used, and it's common for this to describe both the home and the church, which means different parts have different roles. The wife's role and the husband's role are not interchangeable. And when we have found our roles, we fit together. We complement each other at the deepest level. What this passage does not say is that every woman should submit to all men. That This instruction is given in the context of a loving, life-giving, sacrificial marriage. It is not giving rules for a whole society. It's not saying that men must be in power. It's not saying that men you know, should get the high-paying jobs or that men should work and women should stay home. It's not saying those things. In fact, I think it's intentionally vague on how this whole structure actually plays out in real life. There are some limiters, certainly. Like the first limiter, it says that the husband must never exercise what's called headship to please himself. Look, it says, love your wives as Christ loved the church and sacrificed. He died for her. He gave himself up for her. And I realize this text has been greatly abused by those who would misinterpret it through a lens of misogyny with wives somehow being servants and doing all the work or agreeing to any request that their husbands think up. That is not the heart of this text in the slightest bit. 
All it asks is that wives give up self-centeredness, take seriously their mutuality with their husbands and promote the benefit of their husbands. And it's the husband's job to always put the needs and desires of his wife ahead of his own. Always, which means this. Let's say you have to buy a car, husband and wife, and you can't agree. The wife really wants to buy a red car, the husband really wants to buy a blue car, and you can't agree. Does the husband get to say, honey, remember Ephesians 5.22, I'm the head, so it's the blue car. No, because the wife can say, honey, remember Ephesians 5.25, you're supposed to die for me. Like it's the ultimate wife trump card. And so what does the headship thing actually mean? Well, as far as I can tell, it involves spiritual leadership of the home. Again, we're defining leadership through the biblical definition, which is servant leadership. And it's as if Paul says, here's the principle, you work out the details. It doesn't say who gets to control the checkbook. It doesn't say, you know, well, what about working or not working? It doesn't say who's the primary child raiser. The Bible is giving us a principle for all times, places, culture, century. And it gives both form and yet freedom. And I think it's the job of every couple to agree on the details. You, you work it out yourselves based on your gifts, your personalities, your temperaments, your culture. You, you work it out. But no matter what you work out, I still believe based on passages like this in the Bible that there's a, a rubber meets the road kind of leadership role that every husband has in the home. And I'm not sure why God set it up this way. My wife, Kim, is, is one of the greatest leaders I know. She does so many things I could never do. And still I believe that I'm gonna stand before God someday and answer for how I've led my family. I think it's a great call to Christian men, to, guys, to lead your homes, to be as surrendered as you've ever been to Jesus, to, to be exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit in your life every day, to be bold, you know, solving spiritual problems in your family and, and in the larger world around you, addressing injustices in our community, being present in the big stuff that God is up to all around you in our generation. And as husbands and wives find their complementary roles, this spirit of sacrifice must be at play as, as we steward this incredible gift called family that, that we've been entrusted with. It seems there's always this dance when the Bible describes husbands and wives. Wives, submit to your husbands. Husbands, honor your wives. Wives, respond to your husbands. Husbands, give yourself up for your wives. This passage ends with another one of these, and I think it's a great summary. It says, husbands, love your wives, and wives, respect your husbands. I think one of the most profound things a couple could do as you walk away from this message today is wives, to, to sit down and ask your husbands if you dare. How could I respect you better? And then just listen. Take some notes. Don't get defensive. Just ask and listen. And husbands, ask your wives, how could I sacrificially love you better? Like, how could I do a better job making you feel like you are the most important thing in my life next to God? And then just listen and take notes and do something about it. Here's the sixth. It's the mystery of marriage. And it's a picture of Jesus and his church. Now, notice in verse 25, Paul says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word. And later he says, this is the mystery. We're talking about Jesus and the church. See, when a man and a woman are united in marriage, economically, socially, emotionally, physically, in every way, you begin to taste a little bit of what it's gonna be like to be known face to face by Jesus on that day. Marriage is this shadow of a greater reality and marriage has been invented to be a vehicle of the gospel for your sanctification and for your redemption. The basic purpose of marriage is to turn you into somebody holy. That's what it's there for. And it becomes this little cycle 
of the good news of Jesus. What do I mean by that? What you see in, ver- in marriage very clearly is that you can't be saved by your works. You can't be loved for your performance. It won't ever be good enough. Don't shout amen. It's sheer grace. It's marriage is constant forgiveness and, by, and, and, and certainly constant repentance. In fact, in a good marriage, what you have is the drama of salvation continually and constantly being played out in small ways every day, in bigger ways monthly and, and maybe yearly. It is the best place to practice repentance and grace. And this cycle goes around. You, you live in peace and harmony for a while with each other, with your spouse. Until one person decides to live selfishly, to put their happiness above the other. There's sin and there's estrangement and there's alienation and there's hostility for a time until someone has the guts to repent and then there's redemption and restoration and reconciliation which leads back again to that peace and harmony. Does that sound familiar? That is the gospel in a nutshell. You see, in every good marriage, this, this sort of cycle is happening all the time at varying levels of seriousness. And grace is extended again and again. It's the washing, it's the cleansing of holiness that Paul is referencing here. You know, at our physical locations today, we're celebrating baptisms, which dovetails beautifully into this picture of the the cleansing forgiveness of the grace offered by Jesus. Well, that's also the mystery of marriage. We get to be a living, walking, breathing example of grace. And when we do it well, we begin to radiate to a lost world what the power of the restorative work of Jesus looks like. Now, there is so much more I'd like to say, so many issues and questions and nuances that I'm sure that you have that I just haven't had time to address today in in one single short, not so short message. (laughs) But I wanna come back to where we started, this definition of family we've been using all month. And if you're married today, I would love for you to kind of overlay the concepts of marriage that we talked about onto this framework. But everyone else can, all, can also consider this too. As we close today, would you reflect on your family and simply ask the questions? Are we exposed to multi-generational influences? Are we functioning as a team? Do we have clarity around our mission? And I'm praying today for so many families at Grace to return to God's original design and to seek his grace in your marriage. I love you guys.